you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do, um, we do open our hearts to you. We pray that by the clearness and the brightness of your holy word, all the world might come within your saving embrace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Who's familiar with the book, um, Oh, the Places You'll Go? Dr. Sue, yeah, yeah, it's a good motivational book. Um, I think it's the first page. It says, you have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know. And you are the one who'll decide where to go. Um, when it's 10 below outside, um, when sunrise is at 7.45 in the morning, and work, and work or school or whatever you have is an hour from now, do you really say for yourself, I have brains in my head, feet in my shoes, I can steer myself any good way I should choose. Where should I go today? Now, that book, um, it, the part of the conceit within the book is there's lots of motivational half-truths. It says something really positive, and then it says, and on the other hand, sometimes things are quite difficult and more hard. Um, but it's true. Um, and so that book, again, to be fair, it's not just unbridled optimism, but it is, it's a lot of half-truths. You are the one who will decide where you go, um, but conditions and relationships, circumstances of life, they, they have a, a binding um, power in our choices. Um, life can direct our choices, circumstances of life. And so what is it that motivates you uh, to do the things that you do, uh, to put your feet in your shoes and to go where you choose? Now, uh, when we're young, um, we have parents um, who help direct us where we go. Um, as we get older, we're kind of like, stop nagging me, telling me where I need to go. We certainly don't want siblings to be nagging us in certain directions. Um, there's other motivations that we have or sort of negative motivations like fear. Um, I have a friend who, he recognized that it was an irrational fear, um, but confessed to me that he, he feared being homeless, and so he felt very motivated to just work, 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 because he was afraid of, of losing, losing things. There's necessity. Um, we need things to be able to um, just provide for our basic needs and to be generous with others. There's other, again, negative motivators. There's greed, um, love of pleasure, love of comfort. Um, and then there's more positive motivators like curiosity or creativity. And people call these motivating goals or the things that sort of drive them um, sort of their vocation. They feel a call. It's a sense of calling. Um, but it does beg the question, especially in a secular sense, who, who does the calling? Whose call are you answering? Or um, pop culture reference, um, like the Barbie movie says, what was I made for? What, what was I made for? Now, uh, John appeared in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. And as we noted on January 7th in Baptism of Our Lord, Jesus was identifying as the representative Israelite in that time. And he was baptized in repentance not for his own sins, but for the sins of all of God's people. Um, the sins of God's people is expressed in our Jeremiah passage and many other places throughout Scripture. And Jesus was a faithful representative who then was driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And then as we read today, John is imprisoned and Jesus is out of the wilderness and he begins ministering in Galilee, 
um, ministering not in the wilderness, but proclaiming the kingdom in the land, proclaiming the kingdom in cities and towns, going to synagogues, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Jesus proclaimed the kingdom uh, with power and with authority, and he called disciples to himself with authority. And today's reading describes Jesus' call specifically to the sort of three primary disciples, uh, along with Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Simon Peter, James, John, and Andrew are called. And they're called, they receive their calling in the midst of their calling um, as fishermen. They had that vocation, um, which was probably a generational vocation. Um, It was a vocation of necessity. You do have to eat, and other people have to eat, and so they were fishermen um, catching um, fish for other people. I'm not sure that in the modern Western idea that they would have said, I feel like I really need to be a fisherman, um, as though they had a bunch of different choices before them, and they came to it. I think it was, again, circumstances of life and probably generations and where they were born, Um, Because fishing was a challenging and a dangerous vocation. It was performed over um, this most foreboding of earthly environments, um, the sea, um, water that can suddenly become really rough and dangerous. And if you fall in, um, uh, Keith Gilbert took me sailing um, once, and I think we were two days in, and he said, oh, I didn't, I forgot to tell you what happens if you fall into Lake Superior. He's like, just don't do it. You'll... He's like, by the time it takes me to get the sailboat around, you might have hypothermia. Um, So I'm glad you, I probably wouldn't have gotten on the sailboat if you'd told me that just before the start. Well, I'm brave. I probably would have, but any case, it is. It's a foreboding and a dangerous environment, being in the sea. um, And just, uh, there's a lot of volatility to it. And the men were trying to catch something very elusive, something they couldn't see, something they couldn't you know, control. They were trying to catch fish with nets. They were trying to catch without the modern technology of um, sonar or cameras. Um, and if any of you have done that kind of fishing, even when you have all the advantages, sometimes still you can't catch the fish. Fishing can be a challenging work. And again, it was a generational calling. We might wonder how many generations of fishermen did these men have in their families? And how much generational wealth was invested in their boats and in their nets? Um, But Jesus called them, and immediately they left their nets, they left their father, and followed Jesus. And so Jesus called them in the midst of what to that point had been their primary vocation. And now Jesus gave them a new primary vocation, a new fundamental vocation, saying, I will make you fishers of men. Now, interestingly, um, mastery of the fish and of the sea is, is a first part of God's command um, to people in the very beginning. And God's first command to men and women in Genesis 1, God blessed the man and woman and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And that is also echoed in a command, um, that command is also echoed in David's psalm, in Psalm 8. He says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them and human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than angels and crowned them with glory and honor. 
You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swims the paths of the seas. And so they were called, as we are called, all of us in some primary thing, reaching all the way back to creation, to have fruitfulness and rule over creation um, in, in a, in a, in a God-ordained way. That is what we are called to do initially by God. And as we've emphasized over the past few weeks, Jesus' ministry was to demonstrate human vocation, um, God, the calling for humanity in the flesh. That as our preface and communion leads us to pray, we thank God through Jesus Christ who took on our mortal flesh to reveal his glory. That he might bring us out of darkness and into his own glorious light. And so we might think of salvation as something far off, something that we receive when we die. But I think putting salvation in vocation, having uh, a sense of what was I made for, that's part and parcel of salvation as well. That we have the freedom to decide how to, to answer God's call, but that Jesus has made God known. He is the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father except through him. And that he is fullness of life. So when he calls us, we should answer immediately following him in the way of fullness of life. I have a friend who became um, a Christian as an adult and he at the time was working in banking um, and as he was um, choosing to follow Jesus, he really wrestled with this problem or at least for him a dilemma of how can I use my skills and my knowledge in banking as a follower of Jesus. Um, and he began wondering if he should go into ministry or at the very least go into nonprofit work because that profit-seeking motive for him was so tied up with the flesh up into that point into his life. Thankfully, not too long after that, um, I think the Lord brought him together with Christian mentors, with friends who also worked in banking, men who could model for him Christ-likeness in the place that God had put them and put him and again, showing that, again, salvation isn't something that just we receive and attain to when we die, but something that we work out with fear and trembling as he was working out that salvation with fear and trembling in the midst of things that up to that point had been temptations and places that were earthly. God was putting him um, in an earthly place to bring um, his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so for him, it, for us, it means answering the call of Jesus immediately in whatever place God has placed us and thus extending his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now my friend's concerns about um, just that division between uh, heaven and earth and spiritual and material things um, have some similarities with the questions perhaps that the Corinthians were um, asking and wrestling with in today's epistle reading. The Corinthians were struggling with false teaching of many different kinds. Looking at Corinthians, you have to, it's kind of like you have to backwards engineer from Paul's answers to what perhaps was their problem. Um, but it was. It was a problem of, of confusion about the significance of our earthly life and circumstances and the spiritual realities. And Paul wrote an answer that they should continue to lead the life that the Lord has assigned to them and to which God had called them. Our conditions of life are, are God-given conditions. They can be indeed gifts, and they're not easily changed. And sometimes they can seem like great impediments and hardships, um, but 
Paul is encouraging them, don't feel that they are absolute things that might exclude us from salvation. And so he gives examples of very hard and difficult things in the first part of 1 Corinthians 7. Examples of marriages between those who had converted to Christianity and unbelievers. Um, He gave examples of spouses that didn't want to follow Jesus, that might abandon their Christian spouse in that dilemma of how might I be faithful to this covenant up until now that I'm now called to follow Jesus. And Paul, in our passage today, I think provocatively brings up the example of circumcision. That circumcision and uncircumcision are circumstantial for believers in a, in a spiritual sense, but they're, they're, not circum, they're it's not circumstantial for those who are circumcised. What can the circumcised believer do about it? Um, because what's done is done in circumcision. And he emphasizes, so circumcision or uncircumcision mean nothing. God, keeping God's command is what counts. And that is being obedient in whatever circumstance, whatever situation we are. It is a way in which our, our conditions can be transformed through Christ in us and we in him. Jesus called the disciples from the place of their vocations, but there are clues throughout the Gospels um, and in Acts and others that when he called disciples, they didn't immediately absolutely abandon all those things. There's record of the disciples fishing in Luke chapter 5, and there's um, record of after the resurrection, meeting Jesus on the beach, Jesus making breakfast of fish they had caught in John 21. There are numerous examples of them in boats with Jesus, and so they didn't abandon those skills, but were actually utilized in, in bringing them from place to place and spreading the gospel. Now, while that fundamental vocation of following Jesus um, shaped the rest of their lives, there were still ways in which the conditions of their lives, their relationships, um, God made use of those conditions and of those circumstances. And so while conditions can't separate us from the love of God, um, Paul also goes on to say that that doesn't mean we should be passive um, to those conditions, especially conditions that are unjust and um, harmful or in a place of threat. Writing specifically to Christians who are in bondage, he says, if you can gain your freedom, do so. And then for those who maybe have freedom but maybe feel a, a, um, by circumstance that they might need to put themselves into bondage, he says, do not become bondservants of men. As he's speaking to slavery um, within that time, he was seeking to encourage those who were in a position that seemed like if, if they could change it, it would take a very long time and maybe losing hope that anything could be changed at all. But encouraging them to say, again say that you are empowered in the Spirit to extend God's rule on earth as it is in heaven, even as, as a bondservant, because you are ultimately a bondservant of Christ. And so therefore, the tactics, the posture of those in those hard places could be, um, remain those tactics of faith, hope, and love um, and there's other places within the epistles of counseling those who are in hard, difficult, unjust places to still maintain God is just. God will judge um, those who are, who are wrong. And we see other examples within the Gospels of Jesus' rebuke of Simon Peter um, as he violently resists the soldiers um, who are trying to arrest Jesus. And in our own contemporary examples, as we remembered Martin Luther King Day um, on, on Monday, 
that that was the posture of nonviolence because how can you um, bring justice um, through violence? That was the posture so much of the civil rights movement. Jesus, again, perfectly demonstrated uh, that vocation of faith, hope, and love, of dominion, of subduing the earth, but not in a power, um, power over that is uh, motivated by selfish ambition or vain conceit or greed or vanity, but a posture of perfect humility. And he's subdued and he exercised dominion over um, evil powers by healing, um, by feeding those who were hungry, by rebuking evil. And he lived his life pouring out his life of love, um, the love of God through his own self-offering, even unto death on a cross. And it's only by walking in that way, taking on that primary vocation by being in Christ and he in us, that we can be, again, fully alive, fully human. A way that we can um, respond to this is through the offertory. Um, uh, Joshua last year just encouraged us to think of the offertory not just in terms of financial um, resources, although there is an aspect, a practical aspect of that, but as an offering of worship. The offertory isn't just a collection of money, um, but it's a token of our lives given as an offering um, in thanksgiving to God. And these offerings of bread and of wine and financial gifts and as you see on the back of your bulletin, things that you wish to just say, I, I commend this, I commit this to the Lord, um, are just at the very best, even the most costly that we can offer. They're still just tokens of our lives that we offer to God who first loved us and offered himself to us in Jesus Christ. And we don't get to see it because the bread and the wine are already up here. Um, but the bread and the wine are your gifts as well, brought forward, um, prepared by a member of our congregation every week as an offering that we give to God, asking that he would bless them along with all the other things, the other tokens of our lives, that they might be transformed into his sacramental life for us. That in exchange for these temporal things, in exchange even for our own mortal life, that God might give us his own divine life through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that he might dwell in us and we in him just as food and drink um, do fuel us and give us life. And again, I bring that up, um, that example of offertory, not to say give more, but to see the significance of what we bring. Um, and the significance even of the things that we are ashamed of, we're humble, we wish we might give more, or even the things that we're like, oh, there's so much that I have left undone. But to see this as an opportunity to surrender these as tokens of our vacations, tokens of what were we made for, surrendering those to God and receiving it back with blessing and fullness, more than we can ask or imagine. Because as we'll sing, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Come and see now, believe, come, take part in this mystery. That this is indeed the body of Christ, broken that we may be saved. This is the blood of Christ, given that we may live, that we might live abundantly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat>